You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Look in Psalm 32, Psalm 32. I know you guys get tired of hearing me say this. <laughs> Listen, this is one of my favorite psalms. It, it, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing that on purpose, I promise. Uh, but it's just, you know, you, you focus in on a psalm and you study. And Psalm 32 is just rich. I mean, there's so much here. So uh, we're going to talk about forgiveness tonight and uh, specifically God forgiving us, which is a good thing. Uh, notice there the summary of the Psalms, just to remind you of kind of the theming of the book of Psalms. Uh, Kendall easily writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So the Psalms are constant, continual reminders that no matter what we're going through, God is worthy of our trust and He's worthy of our worship. So that's important. And then John Piper uh, highlights the the reality that these psalms are hymns. This is a, a Hebrew hymn book is what we have here. And he writes, the psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. And I'll, I'll just say this parenthetically. If you read consistently through the Psalms, you will feel the Holy Spirit shaping you emotionally uh, in a healthy way, uh, doing something good in your emotional life. And so they're written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And so uh, that's why the Psalms are so loved by God's people. So keep it in mind. Look with me in Psalm 32. We're going to read it together. Not very long. Then I'll pray and then we'll jump into this study. Notice it says there, this is a maskal of David. Maskal is some sort of musical or liturgical term. It's an ancient term. We know exactly what it refers to, but probably something related to music. A, a maskal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I, this is, the psalm shifts here and God begins to speak. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And I like verse 9. I need verse 9 in my life. I don't know about you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, 
which must be curved with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Anyone ever been stubborn in your life towards the things of God? Many are, no, some said no. Okay, good. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this time together. I'm grateful for this faith family that we call First Baptist. Lord, I love the, the folks in this room so much and their families and so grateful, Lord, that you allow us to, to, to live life together as people of faith, um, pursuing you, uh, trying to make a difference in, uh, in our lives. And Lord, I thank you for your word, the way it speaks into our lives and the way it encourages us and challenges us. And I pray, Lord, that tonight we would be encouraged and, Lord, even overwhelmed with the idea of forgiveness. How glorious it is to know that you forgive us of our sin. And we'll thank you, Lord, and praise you for that grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we don't know the exact, as is true with a lot of David's psalms, we don't know the exact context here, but it's basically a moment in David's life where he really blew it. So there are you know, different scenarios in the in the story of David that this could refer to. Of course, we all think of David's sin with Bathsheba when he committed uh, adultery and then murder to cover up his adultery, and he also lied as well. Uh, so that is one moment we see near the end of his life. He was guilty of a prideful census, taking a census of his uh, people, showing off to, to Babylon and and we're not sure exactly what the situation is here, um, but we do know that David had blown it, and he is overwhelmed by his sin, and he needs he needs to be reminded, and he reminds himself of the realities of forgiveness. So there are just basically two themes in this psalm, two major themes I want to point out, and I think that you'll be encouraged by these two themes. Theme number one is blessed forgiveness. Blessed forgiveness. That's what David's talking about here at the beginning of this psalm. Blessed forgiveness. He says there in verse one, blessed is the one whose transgression is, what's the word there? Forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, whose spirit there is no deceit. So the word blessed there speaks of a, a place of favor or happiness or joy. There is a, a blessedness that comes when you know your sins are forgiven. Now, to understand forgiveness, we need to understand sin. If, if forgiveness is not that big of a deal to you, it's because you don't understand just how wicked your sin against God is. And you are ignorant of the far-reaching uh, far effect of sin in your life and the way it reflects, affects your relationships with others. So we need to understand what sin is all about so that we understand just how incredible it is that God forgives us of our sin. And there are three words in this passage that David uses to speak of our sin. The first one is transgression, there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You may want to just underline that word or put a, a mark by it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's the Hebrew word pasha, and it means to cross the line. It speaks of rebellion. That's the blank there. It speaks of 
rebellion against God. And so transgression means God makes his standards, his expectations clear. He draws straight lines and we decide to color outside of the lines. We decide to go in a different direction. We decide to rebel against what God says. That's that's transgression. And every one of us, of, of us in this room are guilty of transgression where we have rebelled against the ways of God. That's uh, transgression. You say, Wade, do you have any stories of your transgression? I do, but it's none of your business. Do you want to come share stories of your transgression? Okay, all right. The second word is the word sin. Just the basic word, sin. Blesses the, the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's kind of the general word for, um, you know, failure, moral failure or sin against God. It's the word uh, chata in the Hebrew language. It means falling short of a mark. This word, sin, occurs about 600 times in the Old Testament. Falling short of a mark. And so the idea of sin is this. God has a standard of obedience expectations, perfection, and we all fall short of that standard. It's like if there were a test given, we have all failed the test. None of us, when it comes to uh, our lifestyle, our lips, our thinking, our actions, when it comes to uh, who we are, none of us have scored a 100 on the moral test, have we? We, we've all, we all have a grade less than 100. We all fall short. Or if you turn, put this into kind of uh, archery uh, allegory, you know, if, if we're shooting at a target, none of us have hit the bullseye every single time. We've all missed the mark. That's the idea uh, here. And it, that's the idea in Romans 6.23 when it says, all at, or 3.23, Romans 3.23, where it says, all have sinned. And fallen short of what? The glory of God. The, the holy, perfect character and nature of God. So sin means falling short of a mark. Anybody in here ever fallen short? Yeah. The third word, this is an interesting word, is the word iniquity. Iniquity. Verse 2. Blessed is the man who against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's the Hebrew word haon. And it means twisted or crooked. Twisted or crooked. The idea here is that there is a path, a, a path that is straight that we are to walk, and none of us stay on the straight path. We, we, we make things twisted and crooked. It speaks of iniquity against God and his ways. So these are three different words that speak of the human condition. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Everybody is guilty of rebellion and falling short of a mark and, and, and twisting up our lives and living in a crooked way. So that's what sin is all about. But to understand forgiveness, we need to understand what God does with our sin. So we all got it. Sin is a, is a universal problem. But what does God do with our sin 
as an act of grace and love? Well, first of all, he forgives it. He forgives it. There in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgive means to bear away or to be lifted off. That's what that word means. So as we look at this scripture through the lenses of the entire Bible, the completed can of scripture, we understand what forgiveness is. We know that Jesus died for our sin on the cross. He paid the penalty we deserve to pay so that when we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, his shed blood, the blood he shed on the cross, is applied to our sin, and his blood washes away our sin or takes away our sin. And without that, there is a barrier of impurity between us and a holy God. He can even look upon our sin. That's how pure God is. So that sin must be taken away, and it is taken away only by the blood of Jesus. That's why the Bible says, Jesus speaking, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because if you don't come through me, your sin won't be taken away. And if your sin's not taken away, you cannot come into a relationship with the Father. So that's the idea of forgiveness. He he bears it away, no longer holds it to our uh, account. Uh, it reminds me of what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus walking up and the Spirit of God said, that's the one, that's the Messiah. And John the Baptist points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the idea of forgiveness. He takes it away. There's no longer impurity between you and God. There's no longer sin you are bearing. It is taken away. And this was beautifully pictured in Leviticus chapter 16. On the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would gather the entire nation and he would perform these ceremonies, these rituals, on behalf of the Hebrew people. As if to say, we are all sinners that need to be made right with God. And he would go through these ceremonies that pictured the ultimate work of Christ and what he would do when he died on the cross for our sins. So here's one thing the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. He would bring a goat out, and he would lay his hands upon the head of the goat, and he would begin to confess the sins of the people, transferring the sins of the people onto the goat. Now, I don't know how long that took. I mean, I don't know how specific it was. He's like, uh, I, I, I confess Bruce lying this week. You know, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how specific he's getting, but, but, but in some way, the high priest is confessing the sins of the people, and there's this symbolic transfer of the sins of the people onto this goat. And then, after this part of the ceremony was done, the goat would be led away into the wilderness. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. And the, now think about how powerful this would be. The people have seen their sins transferred onto the goat, and the goat would bear their sins away from the camp. It was a symbolic uh, way, beautiful picture, uh, uh, pictorial, uh, pictorial way to say, if you 
follow God's prescription of atonement, if you place your faith in the shed blood, then he will bear your sins away and no longer hold them to your account. That's the idea of forgiveness. Your sins are taken away. We sing about it all the time, that wonderful old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. Listen, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Why don't we bear our sin? Because Jesus took it away. That's forgiveness. Our sin is no longer held to our account. And so sin's a bad deal. We've all committed sin. We, we've all uh, done things that deserve God's wrath and judgment. Our sin separates us from a holy God, but God loves us so much he sent his only son to die in our place so that he could take our sin away. Isn't that good news? That is forgiveness. He forgives it. Secondly, he covers it. He covers it. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And then he says, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. Now, again, this comes from imagery on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats brought into uh, into the, the, the center of the Hebrew people, right there where the uh, tent of meeting was. One goat, the high priest would confess the sins of the people onto its head, and it would be led out into the wilderness, picturing our sin being taken away. The other goat was sacrificed. His blood was shed, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. The only time he could go into the Holy of Holies, once a year, behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant was, and this Ark of the Covenant was this, this beautiful box that was covered in gold, and it had a very special lid. It had a very special lid. There were two cherubim, uh, carved cherubim, covered in gold. Their wings extended towards one another on either end of this box. And the lid that was placed on top of the box was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, okay? Now, think about the symbolism here. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? What was in there? Rod of Aaron, tablets, the law, right? They put the, the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai into the Ark of the Covenant. So the picture here is God is looking down because his presence was, would be manifest there between the cherubim. That was where he would manifest his presence. God is on top of this Ark of the Covenant manifesting his presence looking down at the law that we have broken. That's a big problem. When you break the law of a holy God, that's a big deal. You deserve punishment. You deserve wrath. You deserve judgment. But there's a covering between the presence of God and between the law that we've all broken, and it is called the mercy seat. And the high priest would sprinkle blood on this mercy seat as a symbolic way of reminding the people of God that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Blood must be shed to cover your sin and rebellion against God. Now, over in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it's, it mentions Jesus being our propitiation, uh, our propitiatory sacrifice. In Greek, the 
the word for mercy seat is propitiation. It's the same word. Propitiation and mercy are the same thing. So Jesus dying on the cross, he's our mercy seat. He's the one that covers our sin and rebellion so that we can be forgiven. And the word propitiation means that he turns God's wrath aside. He he took our wrath for us. He covered our sin so that we would not have to experience God's judgment. And so Jesus is our mercy seat. He, He covers our sin. It says there our sin is covered. Blessed is one whose sin is covered. Third, what does God do with our sin? He doesn't count it against us. Verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In other words, he, he no longer finds us guilty for that sin. He's not bringing to bear punishment on us because of our sin. He doesn't count it against us. Hold your place. We turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, where Paul uses some... Language from the accounting world, New Testament book of Philippians, to talk about God not counting our sin against us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul here says, I, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, so Paul's here saying, I have a religious resume. I thought I was righteous enough to have a relationship with God, but the Lord showed me I'm a sinner that must be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And so that religious resume I was counting on, I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And look in verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so here's what Paul says. He says, I have put in the, the, the loss column my, my righteousness because it's not good enough. And I have gained the righteousness of Christ. And because I've gained the righteousness of Christ, my sins no longer counted against me. It's no longer held against me. I am righteous in Christ. I'm seen as forgiven and living in the righteousness of his son as a gift. So he doesn't count our sin against us, which is really, really good news. And then fourth, and this comes to another passage, not specifically in Psalm 32, but implied in Psalm 32. It comes from Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Turn to Micah 7. 18 and 19, Micah chapter 7, Old Testament book of Micah. What does God do with our sin? He forgets it. He forgets it. Look in Micah chapter 7. If you have to go to the table of contents, go do that. It's a great name. Micah's a great name. Right, Micah? It's a great name. All right. Does it bother you that no one can find the book that's in your name? Does that bother you? All right. Micah, you should be able to find that book of all books. All right. Micah chapter 7, 
Verse 18, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. as you sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So this is speaking of the way God uh, dealt with the sins of Israel which means this is the way that God deals with sin in general, with his people. And the idea here is, symbolically, that God takes all of our sin, all of our filth and wickedness and rebellion and and crookedness and falling short, he takes all of that and he buries it in the sea. It is a sea of forgetfulness, meaning that God no longer holds your sin against you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't know your sin. Of course God knows your sin. He just chooses not to remember it. He chooses not to hold it against you. He forgets your sin. He's, it, they're cast into a sea of forgetfulness. So here's the deal. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've been saved, and you're struggling with something from your past, maybe from way back in your past, and you just can't get past it, Sin, guilt, shame, think about it all the time. You are treating your sin in a way God does not. Because I just showed you from the Bible that God forgives it, covers it, doesn't count it against us, and forgets it. And you're doing the exact opposite when you're holding on to that sin. And so part of Christian maturity is understanding the gospel so that we see our sin the same way God sees our sin. And we say, you know what? My sin has been covered. It's been taken away. So it's a sea of forgetfulness. Why am I remembering it if God doesn't, right? Why am, I, why am I going fishing for my old sins when God has buried them in a sea of forgetfulness? And so this speaks of the blessedness of forgiveness. He, David here talks about what God does with our sin. And it is wonderful. It is good to be forgiven. But then the scene shifts a bit, and David begins to talk about the second major theme, which is broken fellowship. Broken fellowship. Now, all of this forgiveness and covering and taking away and forgetting, all of that is found in Jesus. We're justified by faith in Christ. Our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're saved, then your sin has been forgiven, taken away, covered, forgotten. Amen? But what about when you're living your Christian life and you blow it again? Past is forgiven, got that down, but what happens when you sin as a Christian? Because we do right? Do I need to spend some time convincing you of that one? We do. This side of heaven, we live in a fallen world. We're bombarded by the system of this world. We're tempted by Satan. Our old sin nature has not been eradicated yet. And so we're, we're being changed into the image of Christ. That's sanctification. We're, 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 we're being transformed over time. That's a process, but we're not home yet, so we're not perfect, 
One day our sin nature will be taken away. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. There'll be no imperfection in heaven. We get to be in heaven forever and ever and ever in a perfect state, just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But until then, what happens when Christians blow it? What happens when Christians blow it? Well, let me just walk you through this. First of all, we see the misery of unconfessed sin. The misery of unconfessed sin. Look what it says there in verse 3. For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Stay lost. So what's David saying here? He's saying, I had some sin in my life. I fell and I fell badly and it caused lots of issues in my life. And and I, I believe there is a connection between soul, spirit, and body. And what David is talking about here are some of the, the physical or psychosomatic effects of sin, how, how sin that he fell into affected his life. He talks about his strength being dried up in verse 4. He talks about uh, day and night, your hand being on me, probably was dealing with sleeplessness. My bones were wasting away, probably feeling some physical effects uh, some sickness, perhaps, uh, because of his sin. And so David is basically saying, when I sinned, I was miserable. I was miserable. And that's important. Warren Wearsby says, what happened to David during these difficult months? For one thing, he became a physical wreck. He was probably about 50 when he disobeyed the Lord. But he began to feel and look like a sick old man. That's what Wearsby says. Usually robust and ready for action, David now had constant pain in his body, was groaning. Hand of God was heavy upon him. Instead of feeling fresh and full of vigor, he was dried up like a plant during a drought. Did he have a fever that dehydrated him? Whatever it was, he was miserable. For he had a def- Listen, he had a defiled conscience, a worried mind, and a sick body. But, Wearsby says, it was worth the pain for the experience brought him back to the Lord. Now, it's my observation. I've felt, dealt with this in my own life, and I've seen other folks' lives. It's my observation that the most miserable people that you'll find yourself around are not lost people, per se. Because a lot of times, lost people are just doing their thing. They're Living like lost people, they're oblivious to the things of God. And they're not really concerned with the things of God. And some of them are even thriving. Read Psalm 73. He talks about people that are wicked, ungodly, that are wealthy and doing great, right, in this life. The most miserable people you will find are Christians who have fallen into sin and haven't dealt with it, and they're miserable. To use... Wearsby's terminology, they have a defiled conscience, a worried mind, and a sick body. They're miserable. Unconfessed sin, sin not dealt with in the life of a Christian, makes you miserable. The Holy Spirit convicts you and makes you miserable. You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. One of the ways I know I'm a Christian is I can't get away with anything. When I sin, when I, when I blow it, immediately the Spirit of God puts His finger on that issue in my life. And it's, it's not very much fun, but as Wearsby says, it's worth the pain because it brings you back to the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis says it like this. 
The misery of sin can be a gift from God. And then Charles Spurgeon says this. I love this quote. God does not permit his children to sin successfully. I like that. If you can go your own direction, it's not going to be joyful. It's going to be miserable because you know better. And the Holy Spirit will remind you that you know better. And God will allow consequences or cause consequences in your life to show you that you need to get back on the right path. That's called the discipline of the Lord. Some more about that in just a moment. But we see here the misery of unconfessed sin. Misery of sin that has not been dealt with. So let's go to the next thought under that heading. This is important to remember. For the child of God, sin does not break your relationship with God. It affects your fellowship with God. That's important. So when you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, for me that happened when I was nine years of age, you are forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, even future, because I was saved at nine. I've sinned since I was nine. And Jesus died on the cross for all my sin, right? So all of my sin is washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm forgiven of my sin I'm brought into a relationship with God. And Ephesians 1, 14 says, 13 and 14, that I'm sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. I'm in His hand. I'll never be snatched from His hand. Once you're a Christian, you have an unbreakable relationship with God, right? That relationship will never be broken. You are eternally secure in Christ. But when you sin and go your own way as a Christian and don't deal with it, you let it fester and let it take root and let it bear fruit, when that begins to happen, it affects your closeness to God, your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God. So just a kind of a, just a, a silly illustration. My dad is Buddy Humphreys. He's always going to be my dad. I'm always going to be his son. That's never going to change. But I could go to my dad and say, Dad, I hate your guts. I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. Now, would that break the relationship? I'd still be his son. But it would affect the fellowship until I got right with him, right? Until I said, Dad, that was wrong. I'm sorry. I love you. I want to be with you. And, 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 and that's what it looks like in our relationship with God. If you're a Christian, when you sin, it doesn't break your relationship. It affects your fellowship, your closeness with God. Uh, years ago, a lady gave me a little cross-stitched, framed thing. And, and it basically just said on there, and I kept it in my office for a long time. It says, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? <laughs> and so we need to understand this idea of of affected fellowship or closeness or intimacy with God. And so to kind of even um, push, push in on this a little bit further, we receive complete positional forgiveness at the moment of conversion. That happens for every person that becomes a Christian. So when we sin as Christians, we are to confess those sins so we can enjoy a clean heart and renewed closeness to God. Psalm 51 is a prayer of, of confession. And it, and it says in the words right before verse 1 that Psalm 51 was written in response to his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And in Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Purge me as with hyssop. Wash me. Make me clean. David is repenting of his sin. He's confessing his sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let me show you just a really important verse about confession. Turn to Proverbs 28. Right after the book of Psalms. Proverbs 28. This one gets me. Proverbs 28. Verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So if you're a believer in Jesus and you go down the wrong path and you begin to stumble, stumble headlong into sin and you don't deal with it and it begins to take root and bear fruit, all right, you're not going to prosper. God's not going to let you sin successfully. Can I get an amen? So what do you do? Look at the next phrase. But he who confesses, now watch this, and forsakes will obtain mercy. Now, I'm, the reason I'm highlighting that is because of this. There have been times in my life I've confessed this sin to the Lord, knowing in my mind I was going to do it again. You ever done that? Anybody ever done that? I'm confessing, but in my heart I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. And... That's not where you find freedom and victory and renewed intimacy with God. You find freedom and victory and renewed intimacy with God when you confess and draw a line in the sand and say, I don't want to do it anymore. So God, I confess it. It was wrong. I'm not making excuses. Would you clean up my heart? And would you change something in my heart so that I don't have the proclivity or, or the inclination or the desire to do it again? I want to confess and forsake. I, th I think a lot of Christians get into just the, I'm just going to confess, 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 confess. And they never build into their life a, a, a game plan to forsake. And that's of, of, of great importance. So when we sin as Christians, we are to confess those sins so we can enjoy a clean heart and renewed closeness to God. Here's what I believe. I've not done a survey on this. Perhaps I need to. This is anecdotal, just kind of being a pastor now for 26 years. I believe this is the most under-practiced discipline in American Christianity. I believe most Christians in America don't practice regular confession of sins. And they wonder why their spiritual life seems so dry and stale and stagnant. They wonder why they're, they're stuck in spiritual neutral. They wonder why there's no victory in their life. There's only defeat after defeat after defeat. I think it's because... Christians do not practice regular confession and forsaking of sins. This is a big deal. Let me, say, let me say this. I think there are a lot of miserable Christians with a bunch of junk in their life they need to deal with. And they're miserable because God doesn't let you sin successfully. And the misery is intended to bring you back to Him, right? And so we've got to learn and confess uh, our sins to God. James speaks of confessing sins to one another. There's a, there's a, there's a, a blessing when you maybe get a trusted brother or sister in Christ 
someone that loves you and you can trust and maybe just telling them about your struggles and saying, hey, I'm confessing. I want to forsake. I need your help. I need you to check on me. Ask me some questions. Uh, but there, there, there's a community that can be uh, brought to bear on this as well that can help us to experience victory over our sins. So when we sin as Christians, we're to confess those sins so we can enjoy a clean heart and renewed closeness to God. Uh, again, to kind of to kind of hammer this point home, I believe this is one of the reasons most Christians don't experience the joy of the Spirit-filled life. Because Jesus compared the Spirit in John 7 to rivers of living water, right? Be rivers of living, living water flowing from your innermost being in Jesus, uh, or the Bible says Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is supposed to operate in our lives like a mighty rushing river of power and love and grace. Do you see a lot of Christians walking around like that? With that kind of fullness? The reason is because sin that has not been confessed is like putting rocks in a river. If you put enough rocks in any river, it's going to dam up the flow of the river. And I believe when we have unconfessed sin in our life, sin we have not dealt with, we are, we are hindering the, the work of the Holy Spirit who wants to flow through us in a mighty way. And so this deals directly with the Spirit-filled life and why a lot of Christians don't experience the fullness of the Spirit-filled life. So let me give you some life lessons, and we'll, we'll finish this up. Back in uh, Psalm 32, and there's so much here. We could go a lot longer, but let's just finish this up. First of all, if you've never experienced God's forgiveness, go to Him before it's too late. Back in Psalm 32, verses 6 and 7, David says, after he acknowledges the sin to the Lord, he, uh, he says, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. Verse 6, is, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So he's basically sounding a warning here. Before you get caught up in the judgment, you hear the rush of great waters uh, where it's too late to go to God. Go to God now. Offer prayer when you may be found. Second, as a Christian, don't be stubborn about your sin. Deal with it. Look in verse 8. Again, the, the psalm shifts here, and God is speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with an eye upon you. So God has promised that, that part of what he does, he guides us through life. And he just he encourages us here, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Don't be a, a wild, rebellious mule, right? Respond to God's leadership. Respond to God's teaching. Respond to God's conviction. Don't be stubborn about your sin. Deal with it when He convicts you. Don't be stubborn about your sin. And then third, as a Christian, we should rejoice in God's grace. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David closes this psalm by saying, listen, if you have experienced the forgiveness of God, the glorious, amazing 
forgiveness of God, you ought to rejoice because it feels so good and it means so much to be forgiven. I read a story about a man that had been in prison for years being released and that man got on a train and he was sitting by the window looking out the window of the train sitting by another man and the man who had been released from from prison sitting there seemed very anxious very disturbed the man sitting beside him said well what's wrong and so this man who had been released from prison begins to tell a story he says i've lived a really reckless life. I've caused my family so much heartache and so much grief. I've been in prison for decades, and I've just been released. And the man said, well, you should be excited. You've you've been released from prison. And the man said, Because of my sinful choices, because of my poor choices, I've lost contact with my family through the years. And as I was getting close to being released from prison, I thought, well, I need to know what my family thinks. So he tried something. He wrote a letter just before he was released from prison. And he said this. He said, on a coming date which was the day he was on the train, I'm going to be going by our family property on a train. The family farm was on the outskirts of town. The railroad tracks went right by that family property. And he says, if you can forgive me, and if you want me to come home, would you just put a white ribbon on the old apple tree there by the fence? Just one white ribbon. And I'll know that I can come home and that you forgive me and we can have a reconciled relationship. And so the man sitting beside him said, well, what's, what's wrong? He said, well, I just, I don't know what they're going to, I don't know if there'll be a ribbon there or not. And he was just anxious. And as he got closer and closer to where his family property was, he finally was so anxious that I can't even look. He said, can we switch seats? He said, will you tell me what you see? So they switched seats and the man who is released from prison is looking the other direction, the, the, the traveling companion was looking out the window as they were getting closer and closer to the farm. And when they got to the farm, the man looked out the window, grabbed the leg of the released prisoner and said, have no fear, the tree is full of white ribbons. Can you imagine the relief that man felt because his family said, come home, we want relationship with you. We're no longer holding your record of recklessness against you. You are forgiven. Can you imagine the feeling that man felt in that moment? That's what forgiveness is. That's what it means to be forgiven by God. And that feeling should, should fill up all of our hearts and cause us to rejoice that God in His grace has made a way for us to be forgiven and brought into a relationship with him that will never, ever end. Forgiveness is a wonderful, wonderful thing. 
Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.